goggles this morning. Think I've got that on. <coughs> Genesis chapter 12 this morning. <coughs> Genesis chapter 12. And let's just read verse 10 this morning as we begin. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10. <coughs> it says, And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was grievous in the land. Let's open with a word of prayer. To the Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for the privilege that we have of being together in this place. Lord, we can meet together free from persecution. Lord, we can meet together to, to spend time around your word and uh, in fellowship together as a body of believers, and we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that this morning now as we come around your word, that you would help us to come with hearts that are prepared to receive your word this morning. May you speak to us and teach us uh, through your word. I pray that you would empower me this morning uh, through the Spirit. You give me wisdom and guidance as I speak. And that, Lord, everything I say this morning would be from you. And that, Lord, you would be honored, you would be glorified now as we uh, consider your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Of course, last uh, Sunday we saw Abraham finally arrive in the land of Canaan, the the land that God had uh, said that he would lead him to, the land that God promised to give to his seed there in verse 7. This was the promised land. And as we saw last week, even though he was now in the land, he didn't immediately go and settle down. He didn't uh, find somewhere and establish a permanent residence, a permanent uh, dwelling place. Uh, he didn't go and join himself to the, the Canaanites of the land. Instead, he stayed separate. He remained separate, content to dwell in his tent and follow the Lord's leading. He was looking for that city whose builder and maker is God, as it says there in Hebrews. And almost now abruptly in verse 10, we read of Abraham's first real test of faith. Uh, real test arriving after he's come into the land. I mean, he's already been tested, but his first test since he arrives in the land. You know, sometimes we have this uh, perception that if we're in the will of God, that everything will be smooth sailing, that there'll be no problems, there'll be no hardships, no difficult circumstances that come our way. You know, trials and and testing, uh, difficult circumstances, they're all part of God's uh, plan, aren't they? They're all part of God's refining Uh, for us as believers, to make us all that he wants us to be, to refine our faith, strengthen our faith. Now Job, who perhaps more than anyone understood what it meant to go through trials and testing, Job wrote in Job 23 verse 10, he says, But he knoweth the way that I take, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And that's the point, isn't it? Trials and tests are sent by God for a purpose. They are used by God to refine our faith, to get rid of the dross, and to strengthen our faith in Him. And that's certainly what happens here with Abraham, here in Genesis chapter 12. God allows this trial, this difficult circumstance to come into his life, uh, to test his faith. And he is greatly tested, his commitment to the Lord is greatly tested as well. And as we'll see this this, this morning, sadly, it's a It's a test that Abraham fails. He does. He fails miserably this test that comes his way. But you know, that doesn't mean God cast him aside. That's the wonderful thing. Even though he does fail, he doesn't get 
cast aside. The Lord doesn't reject him. The Lord instead uses it to teach Abraham, to teach him and uh, to teach him this valuable lesson so that he might then go forward uh, for the Lord. And so this morning we want to consider Abraham's response uh, to this trial, this test that comes his way, and, and also the consequences of his wrong response. And so notice firstly with me this morning the test and decision. The test and decision. Look there in verse 10 with me. It says, And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was grievous in the land. As we said earlier, verse 10 <clears throat> almost rather abruptly uh, begins with the words, After this there was a, a famine in the land. Now we're not told exactly how long Abraham has been in the land when this takes place. We're not told how many years or months or maybe it's just weeks. We're not told exactly how long he's been in the land before this famine arrives. But it doesn't seem like it's a long period of time. It seems like it follows fairly quickly on after he's arrived in the land. Now let's consider that for a moment. You know, Abraham, he showed considerable faith, hasn't he? I mean, we've focused on his faith the last uh, couple of weeks. We've looked at Abraham, his faith in, in following the Lord's calling upon his life. I mean, uh, because God called him, he packed up everything he knew. He packed up his, his family, his home, his belongings, his tent, and he went on the road following the Lord. You know, he left the comforts, the luxuries of Ur and, and then Haran. And he journeyed across the desert to this place he'd never been before, the land of Canaan. And he arrives there and he worships the Lord. And the Lord says, I'll give this land to your seed. He's in the land that God had promised to give him, this land of blessing. And the very next thing we read of is how the Lord now allows this terrible famine to come into the land, testing his faith. Now, a famine that seemingly threatens the very survival of his family. We've got to put it in perspective. It's not like today where, you know, you can run out to the shops and get some food. If there was a famine, it was threatening your life. And that's what's happening here for, for Abraham, okay? It's threatening his life and his family. It's a serious situation, a serious test of his faith. As far as we know, you know, this is an experience that's completely new for Abraham too. I mean, we don't read of him going through a famine back there in Ur or in Haran. And so as far as we know, this is new. I mean, those two cities were both very prosperous. <clears throat> they were very productive places to live. But now he's followed the Lord by faith. He's journeyed all this way. He's left all that behind and he finds himself now in the place God wants him, but he's now facing this great famine. Now, why does the Lord allow this to occur? Now, well, it's sent by God to teach Abraham and to teach Sarah that they need to keep trusting God even after success. To keep trusting Him as they go forward. You see, one of the greatest enemies that we all face is pride, is it not? The enemy of pride. You know, when we've had a great victory in our spiritual life and we've stepped out by faith and we follow the Lord and we're following His leading, we're in His will, you know, it's easy then to become complacent. It's easy then to become overconfident. And, you know, because we're in His will, we, we face this problem. We think, I've got the answer, and we just take it on ourselves. We become overconfident. We become 
complacent, we come full of pride. And we forget to trust the Lord as we go forward. We forget to seek His will. You know, this is why so often we find that triumphs in our Christian life are closely followed by tests, because they keep us humble, don't they? They keep us trusting the Lord. They're God's way of reminding us that we need to keep focusing on Him. God's way of refining our faith, as I said earlier, removing the dross, strengthening our faith as we go forward. The commentator Wearsby writes this, Tests often follow triumphs. This principle is illustrated in the history of Israel. No sooner had the nation been delivered from Egypt than the Egyptian army chased them and cornered them at the Red Sea. Triumph was followed by testing. God then brought them through, but then they faced another test, no water. After that came hunger and an attack from the Amalekites. Test followed triumphs. And that happened right throughout Israel's history, didn't it? There was always these times that have great success, great victory, and then followed after was a test, a trial, a difficult circumstance to keep them humble and make them focus upon the Lord. And we see that he's God's way of working with his servants right throughout the Word of God. And indeed, that's what we see here with Abraham. I mean, he's just had his greatest triumph, hasn't he? I mean, by faith, he's left his homeland. He's journeyed across the desert. He's arrived in the promised land. He's had a great triumph of faith. And now there follows this test of faith. You know, God didn't want him to become proud, to become self-confident, and so God puts him and his faith into the furnace of testing. As I said earlier, sadly, on this occasion, Abraham's response is not one of faith. Instead of remaining in the land where God has led him to, the land God wants him to be in, and trusting God to keep him safe in the land, Abraham makes this rash decision that he's going to leave the land and journey down to Egypt. We see that in verse 10. It says, And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was very grievous in the land. And so, we, you know, Abraham here makes this decision. He makes this rash decision to pack up his family, his tent, and to head down now into Egypt. And, you know, we can be sure that Abraham made this decision with all the best intentions. You know, that he'd, he'd looked at the situation and he looked at, you know, the, the, the outcome before him and he thought, you know, Egypt's the best solution. Egypt is the, the best thing to do for my family at this time. It's the wise and logical solution before him. You know, in Canaan, things are sparse. Things are becoming harder to live. But in Egypt, there's plenty. Now, the commentator Barnes writes this. He says, Canaan was watered by periodical rains. A season of drought arrests the progress of vegetation and brings on a famine. But in Egypt, the fertility of the soil depends not on local showers, but on the annual rise of the Nile which is fed by the rains of far distant mountain range. Hence, when the land of Canaan was wasted by drought and consequent famine, Egypt was generally so productive as to be the granary of the neighboring countries. You see, every time Canaan went through a famine, Egypt usually had plenty. It ended up being the granary for all the surrounding countries. And that's the point here, as Abraham's looking at the situation... He thinks, well, Egypt's got plenty. It's the logical answer to the problem. 
You see, the problem here is that Abraham's only looking at the problem. That's where he's looking. That's his focus. He's focusing on the problem before him. He's not looking at the Lord. He's not focusing on the Lord here and asking the Lord what his solution is. He's focusing on the problem and thinking, how can I deal with this problem before me? He's not walking by faith. He's walking by sight. You know, God's promises to him hadn't changed, had they? You know, those promises that God had given him when he said that I'll take you to a land and I'll give that land to you and I'll bless you abundantly in that land, God's promises hadn't suddenly changed. God hadn't suddenly taken those promises back. Those promises still were in place. God was still with Abraham. And God would surely bring him safely through this famine, through this trial. But instead of going to the Lord, instead of humbly seeking the guidance of the Lord, the counsel of the Lord, what we find is that Abraham makes this decision in his own strength, according to his own wisdom. And that's the real problem here, isn't it? That he makes this decision in his own strength, without the counsel of the Lord, in his own wisdom. He says it's not so much that he goes down to Egypt, that's the problem. You know, God may have led him down to Egypt. That may have been God's plan. That may have been God's solution to the problem. Indeed, God later on led Jacob and his family down to Egypt in a similar situation, a famine in the land. And so the problem is not where he ends up going. The problem is that he does it without the counsel of the Lord. He, he makes this decision without seeking God first. You know, perhaps he was overly confident after leading his family across the desert. Perhaps he was driven by fear of what's taking place. Perhaps he was driven because of family constantly nagging him. There's pressure from family around him. But whatever the reason, he forgets the Lord and he heads down into Egypt. And in doing so, Abraham steps outside of the will of God. He steps out of the will of God. You know, like Abraham, when we serve the Lord, when we're in the will of God, doing what God's asked us to do, we're going to face trials and testing. There's going to be hard times that come. We sort of mentioned a little bit of that last week. There will be difficult circumstances. And when those times come, we need to make sure that we always go to the Lord, get our eyes off the problem and get our eyes on the Lord and seek His wisdom, His counsel, His strength. You see, the moment like Abraham, we get our eyes off the Lord, we forget to seek Him, and we try and deal with the problem at hand on our own, what we'll do is we'll get ourselves into trouble, as Abraham does here. You know, Proverbs chapter 3 makes that point clear, doesn't it? We know the verse as well, but let's turn there. Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, we know it well. It says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Now, Proverbs 3 makes the point clear. We are to trust in the Lord and not lean unto our own understanding. Don't follow our own wisdom. Instead, seek him, acknowledge him, and let him direct our paths. You see, when those hard times come, we need to remain steadfast in the will of God, looking to Him and waiting for His leading. The worst thing we can do is, like Abraham, try and deal with the circumstance, the situation ourselves, 
and find ourselves out of the will of God. Commentator Wearsby writes this, When circumstances become difficult and you are in the furnace of testing, remain where God has put you until he tells you to move. God alone is in control of circumstances. You are safer in a famine in his will than in a palace out of his will. And it has been well said, the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. He said, so it's a wonderful truth, isn't it? The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. Abraham was in the will of God and he should have stayed put. He should have waited for God's leading. But instead, he got his eyes at the Lord on the problem and he tried to deal with it himself. And so he headed down into Egypt. And now out of the will of God, we see that Abraham begins to scheme. And so that we see secondly here this morning, we see his scheme in verse 11. Genesis chapter 12, <clears throat> and verse 11, says, And it came to pass, when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, that thou art my sister, that it may be well with me, for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Now what we see here is that Abraham here is now out of the will of God. He's not following the guidance of the Lord. He's not following the direction of God anymore. And so Abraham now begins to scheme to deal with the problems that he faces, the perceived problems ahead. You know, this is what happens, isn't it, when we're no longer walking in the will of the Lord. Now we move from trusting in God to keep us, to scheming to deal with the problems that we face. We move from confidence and peace in the Lord our God to suddenly being filled with fear at everything before us. You know, it really has a flow-on effect, doesn't it? As soon as we get out of the will of God, it's like a downward slope. We make more and more wrong decisions. Abraham made this decision to go to Egypt without God and now he tries to deal with this problem without God. As they come near to Egypt, Abraham begins to fear that the Egyptian men are going to kill him to take Sarah for themselves. We see that in verse 11 there. It says, Therefore it shall come to pass, oh sorry, verse 11, it came to pass, when he was come near to Egypt, that he said unto Sarah his wife, Behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass, when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. He begins to fear for his own life, to fear that, you know, when they see his, his wife Sarah, they'll kill him to take her for themselves. You know, by this time Sarah is over 60 years old, and yet it still says that she's a fair woman to look upon. And this reminds us once again how close we are to the flood and to the fact that. Men were living much longer lives. They were aging much slower. And Sarah is obviously a very beautiful woman. And Abraham knows this. And Abraham becomes concerned that the Egyptians are going to want to take her for themselves and do it by force. And Getz writes this, he says, Abraham's fears were not without reason. History records that Egyptian men were very impressed with Semitic women. Furthermore, it was... Uh, rather standard procedure in those days for men to secure women 
as their wives by murdering their husbands. And so Abraham's fear was not unfounded. It was something the Egyptians were known for. But he only had fear. Why? Because he was out of the will of God. That's the only reason that this held, held any fear for him. You see, if he was walking with the Lord, if God had been the one to tell him to go down to Egypt, then he wouldn't have had anything to fear, would he? He wouldn't have had any fear in this situation. He could have taken it to the Lord. He could have taken this concern to his God and he could have known that God already had a solution and that God would protect him. God would keep him safe. But because he's not walking by faith, he's walking by sight, this becomes yet another problem that he feels he must deal with on his own. And so he comes up with this scheme. As we see there in verse 13, he says, Say, I pray thee that thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. This is his scheme. Abraham asked Sarah to tell anyone who asks that she is his sister rather than his wife. Now, of course, this is a half-truth. We saw in Genesis 20, verse 12, it says that, he's, uh, that Sarah is his half-sister. So it's a half-truth. But it doesn't justify using it, does it? They're using it here deliberately to deceive. It's a lie. It's a, it's a, a deliberate attempt to deceive the Egyptian people. And Abraham here reasons that this is the best solution. That this is the best solution, the best outcome. You see, at least this way, he wouldn't be put to death. And Sarah would be well treated, treated with respect. Morris writes this, he says, If Sarah was recognized as his sister, both she and Abram would be treated with respect and his life would not be endangered. It is true that this might mean she would be approached by the Egyptians, but that would be true also if Abram were killed for her sake. So, this seemed the best of a bad bargain. Sarah, no doubt, saw, this, saw it in this light also, and so she went along with the half-truth. She agrees to this, and they both agree this is the best solution, the best choice out of the, the bad choices before them. And so they make this decision to lie, to deceive, and say that Sarah is his, his sister. Now, it's a sad sight, isn't it? You've got Abraham and Sarah here, these two who by faith had, had journeyed all the way across to the land of, of Canaan, obeying the Lord, living by faith, being characterized by faith. And here we see them now not living by faith, going down into Egypt and trusting in a scheme, a lie, deception, to keep them safe. Now, so often this is the way when we get out of the will of God, there's a flow-on effect, isn't there, of bad decisions. Yeah, out of God's will, we, we no longer have peace and confidence that only He can give. And so we start scheming to deal with problems that arise. We start to try and deal with them through deception or whatever it might be. Whatever means we can, we justify it to deal with that problem before us. Now, Weasby writes this, he says, When you're in the place of God's choosing, you don't ever need to be afraid, for faith and fear cannot dwell in the same heart. You see, out of the will of God, there's nothing but fear. When we're in the will of God and we're living by faith, there is no fear because God's with us. God's in control. But outside of the will of God, there's nothing but fear as we face these troubles and these problems before us. And so like Abraham, we scheme and we try and deal with them ourselves and we make more and more 
terrible decisions. And so with this scheme agreed, they come into Egypt, and now finally this morning we see the consequences. We see the consequences of all their actions. Look there in verse 14. It says, And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and he entreated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. Now upon their arrival in Egypt, we find that Abraham's scheme has worked perfectly, hasn't it? It worked exactly as he had planned. In fact, it worked better than expected. Because it's not just any old Egyptian who sees Sarah and desires her. It's Pharaoh himself who desires Sarah and takes her to be his wife. As we read there in verse 14 and 15, that we learn how Sarah comes to his attention. It says in verse 15, The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. We read about Pharaoh's princes, how they saw Sarah. They saw her. They saw her beauty. They saw the beauty of character too, probably, but they saw Sarah. And they're impressed with her, and they go and tell Pharaoh about this woman they've seen, this, this Semitic woman. In verse 15, it says, they commended her before Pharaoh. In other words, they praised her. That's what that word commended means. They praised her before Pharaoh. Pharaoh, and he is impressed enough by what he hears to go and take her into his house, into, into his harem, with the plan of making her one of his wives. And so the scheme has worked perfectly, hasn't it? It worked exactly as Abraham had planned. Sarah had indeed, as he thought, been desired by the Egyptians. In fact, by Pharaoh himself. And she had indeed been taken to be his wife. And Abraham's life had been spared. The plan worked. He was still alive. In fact, more than that, Pharaoh lavishes him with gifts as a bride price. That's verse 16. It says, And he entreated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she, she asses and camels. Abraham ends up getting blessed by Pharaoh when he takes Sarah. He gets blessed. He gets given basically a bride price of livestock and of servants. And so rather than being put to death, he's alive. And more than that, he's been blessed by Pharaoh. Indeed, the plan seems to have worked perfectly, doesn't it? Now, we struggle to understand how Abraham and Sarah could have been happy with this. How on earth are they happy with this outcome, this plan? Now, I'm sure they weren't comfortable with it. Sure, they weren't comfortable with Sarah being in Pharaoh's house, in, in line to being one of his wives. But you know, out of the will of God, they thought this was the best outcome. That's why they came up with this plan. Because they thought this was the best outcome. And indeed, it seemed like a profitable decision, didn't it? You know, perhaps even in some perverted way, Abraham thought this material gain was God's way of blessing his decision. God's way of blessing the decision to come down to Egypt. Blessing his decision to, to lie, to make this deception. You know, perhaps he saw it as God's seal of approval. But you know, God was certainly not happy, was he? God was not happy with Abraham, with Sarah, for their actions. 
And we see that God now acts in verse 17. It says, And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. In verse 17, we see that God graciously here deals with, not Abraham, he doesn't judge him. Who does he judge? Pharaoh and his house. This is God's grace. God intervenes here. Okay, before the problem goes any further, God intervenes in his grace and God judges Pharaoh and his house. God plagues them. And with this plague, God makes it clear to Pharaoh that he's not happy. He's not happy with the situation. He's not happy with the fact that he's taken Sarah into his house. Now, we're not told exactly how Pharaoh, Pharaoh sorry, makes the connection. We're not told that. You know, perhaps the Lord revealed it to him in a dream. Maybe the Lord spoke to him by sending an angel. Maybe one of Abraham's company has told Pharaoh the truth. We're not, not told how he makes the connection. But Pharaoh becomes aware that the plague came from Abraham's God. He becomes aware of that. And he becomes aware of the fact that it's come upon him because he's taken Sarah, Abraham's wife, to be his own. And so in verse 18 to 20, he calls for Abraham and he rebukes him sharply. Look there in verse 18. It says, And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. Now therefore behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Now here we see the real consequences for Abraham of his actions. You see, Abraham was supposed to be a blessing unto the other nations, wasn't he? That's what verse 3 says. It says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now we know ultimately the blessing is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the nation of Israel, starting with Abraham, was to be a blessing unto the other nations. It was to, to show them the Lord God. But instead of being a blessing to Egypt, what's Abraham done? He's brought judgment upon Egypt because of his sin, his wickedness, his disobedience to the Lord. Pharaoh and his house have suffered greatly because of Abraham's sin. And it's led to Abraham here completely losing his testimony before a heathen king and a heathen nation. They should have been looking at Abraham and looking at his God and seeing the example of faith. Instead, they're looking at Abraham and seeing the example of a disobedient servant. You see, his testimony is in tatters here before the heathen king. Morris writes this, Pharaoh now feared to harm either Sarai or Abram, but he did sharply rebuke Abram, and no doubt Sarai also. He lost all respect and affection for them, and of course was not attracted to their God. Indeed, what a sad end. Pharaoh is not attracted to the God of Abraham. Far from it, he's upset and cranky at Abraham for lying to him, and he sends him forth. He expels him from his land. What a sad end to see Pharaoh, this heathen king, rebuking Abraham, God's servants, and expelling him out of the land. You know, Abraham ends up having to leave in shame, doesn't he? Leave in shame for what he's done. Instead of being a blessing, instead of pointing the Egyptians to God, he had by their actions turned them further away from God. 
Now, it's always a shameful thing when God's servant is rebuked by the unsaved. That's a shameful thing. It demonstrates just how far outside the will of God we really are. When the unsaved say to us, aren't you a Christian? Why are you acting like that? Why are you here? Aren't you a Christian? It's a shameful thing to be rebuked by the unsaved. You know, this often is the consequence when we, like Abraham, get our eyes of the Lord and we start making decisions on our own. That's where it all started, isn't it? Instead of walking by faith, he started looking at the problems. And he started trying to deal with them himself. himself he walked by sight instead of by faith. Now, when we step out of God's will, when we, we scheme and we try and deal with problems that come our way, in the end, what we'll find is that we're far from where God wants us to be and that our testimony is in tatters before the unsaved. You know, we may even, like Abraham, find ourselves being rebuked by the unsaved for our actions. It's so important that when those difficult circumstances come, we don't try and solve them on our own, no matter how small it may be. Don't try and solve it on our own, but instead take it to the Lord in prayer and seek His will, and remain steadfast until He leads. Don't move until God moves us on. Until He gives us an answer, a solution. But you know, if we do find ourselves outside of the will of God, like Abraham, then the wonderful truth is that God is gracious, and God doesn't give up on us. You see, after all this, God is waiting for Abraham to come back to Him, to repent, to deal with his sin, and that's exactly what Abraham does. Look at the start of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 1. It says, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went in his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Hai, under the place of the altar, which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Where does Abram go? He goes back to where God wanted him to be. He goes back to the land of Canaan. He goes back to between Bethel and Hai, and he goes back to where he set up that altar. And what does he do? He worships the Lord. You see, he repented, and he went back where God wanted him to be. And brother, that's what we need to do. If we get ourselves out of the will of God, we walk by sight instead of by faith, we find ourselves in these situations like Abraham, then we need to repent and return to the Lord. And God's not finished with us. Remember that. God is not finished with us. God can and still will use us. You know, failures are really just an opportunity for us to begin again, aren't they? It's an opportunity for us to begin again and walk by faith and learn from our mistake. As we said at the start, trials and testings teach us. Even when we make a mistake, they test us. They, they teach us. God's not finished with us. And what a wonderful truth that is. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your servant Abraham once again and the, the example that, Lord, we can learn from him. This time, Lord, a, an example where he made a wrong decision, Lord. He stepped out of your will. He lived by sight instead of by faith. And Lord, it had consequences, Lord, affecting his testimony before men. Lord, may you help us to learn from Abraham's mistakes, Lord, this morning. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight. But Lord, if we do get ourselves out of your will and, Lord, in a place where we shouldn't be, Lord, help us to turn back to you in faith. 
to repent and return to you, you and to your will. And Lord, we thank you, you are gracious, Lord, and that you never give up on us. Lord, we thank you and praise you for that. Lord, bless as we close. May we uh, ponder and consider these truths as we depart from this place. In Jesus' name, amen.